Today's episode was underwritten by the Eastern Educational Resource Collaborative. EastEd is a nonprofit group dedicated to increasing equity in schools, communities, and higher ed. For more information, go to www.easted.org. You are listening to Teaching While White, where whiteness intersects with anti-racist teaching and learning. I am Elizabeth Denevi. And I am Jenna Chandler-Ward. More than 80% of teachers in the U.S. are white, but most don't know that their whiteness matters. We want to shine a light on how whiteness impacts education. To illuminate the assumptions that are used as a baseline from which everything is judged, because whiteness is what passes for normal. We want to confront those assumptions so that we can become consciously and intentionally anti-racists for all of our students. You are listening to Teaching While White. We started the conversation in our last episode about the white literary canon. We discussed the problem of creating a vision of the world through literature that is missing a diversity of voices and also reinforces whiteness as normal. Not only is that harmful to students of color who continue to have their experiences stereotyped and erased, but is also harmful to white students who then just see a world with their experience at the center. In this episode, we spoke to Jared Amato, a high school English teacher and his student, Jaquela, who together with some other students from Maplewood High School in Nashville, created something called Project Lit in 2016. It started with a discussion in Jarrett's class about the neighborhood where the school is and how it is a book desert, a place where there are no libraries, bookstores, or other access to books. To remedy this, Jared and his students decided to create mini lending libraries around the neighborhood. They started taking book donations, and this blossomed into the students deciding to create book clubs. Project Lit was born. Their mission says, quote, we are a national grassroots literacy movement, a network of dedicated teachers and students who are committed to increasing access to culturally relevant books and promoting a love of reading in our schools and communities. Jenna went to visit the school and sat down with Jared and his former student, Jaquela, to learn more about how this all came to be. We need to acknowledge overall there is a literacy crisis. There are mm-hmm. a lot of kids in this school, in our district, in our country who are not where they want to be or we want them to be as readers, mm-hmm. right? Yet we continue to do school the exact same way year after year, which tells me that it's by design, that it's doing exactly what we want to do, which means keeping students from having options after high school. And, and I'm fully convinced of that. Like, and people can say whatever they want about me, but that to me is by design. But I do, here's what my ask would be for all the good teachers out there who want to do something different and try things differently and read different texts, we've got to create the space and and allow them to do that. Jared and his students invite people from the community to read a book. They started with the crossover by Kwame Alexander. The students host the book club and lead book discussions with the adults in the community. The students run the entire thing, from getting the breakfast donations to figuring out what themes and topics they want to discuss. This is Jaquela one of the student founders of Project Lit. Right? Yeah. I used to read all the time, but that's because I don't really have too much to do. Now, I have too much to do. Do you love to read? Oh, yeah. I've been reading since I was like four. It's been the highlight of my life. I've always been like this, though. Do you know why you like to read? Well, because like, I don't want to say like all the time, but like, I'm very, like, creative, 
And so it's like my imagination just, it goes there sometimes. So then like when I read these books and it's just like, I picture myself in these books and I'm like, this is amazing. Mm -hmm. Like this is, wow. And it's just like, I really wish, that's why I'm so happy that we doing this because it gives other kids the opportunity because they be like, reading is boring. Like, why do you, like people used to always look at me like that. I was like, what? Cause they be like, you know, like you do those little icebreakers. They're like, what do you like to do in your spare time? I'm like, I like to read. They're like, you like to read. And I'm like, yeah. There's, you why you act like reading is just like a bad thing. So it's like now they can like finally see like where I'm coming from as far as like why I like to read. Through social media, other teachers started to hear what was happening and followed suit. There are now more than 1,000 Project Lit chapters nationally. Jared also reached out to authors and invited them to Nashville. Kwame Alexander, Tiffany D. Jackson, Marco Shiro, Jason Reynolds, and Nick Stone, among others, have all come to meet the students and teachers and to support the work of Project Lit. Jared calls what he and his students created a grassroots movement. Project Lit came from the particular interest and drive of the students. It's kind of like underground, like where you can't really get mad because you see how great everybody, like we're happy and we're doing, so you'd be a real idiot to like come out and say, stop, but it's not like we have permission mm -hmm. to do this work. There's a lot of playing school that happens. Like we play English class, we play school, and we just kind of go through the motions and teachers don't even, sometimes because of the way our policies and our way the system works, like sometimes we don't even recognize our own power and our own yeah, our, our own power, right? The, the impact that we can have by the text we choose. And so if a teacher's never even able to choose the text and they're always picked by somebody else, they're not even thinking about, wow, this, wait, there's another way. Like this actually is not working. It actually could be harmful. The curriculum is always changing in response to the students, yet Jared still teaches all the basic literacy skills. He says it's just not in the typical way. They'll demonstrate mastery of point of view and character and theme and blah, 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 right? We do all that and they develop, we do commas and semicolons and we do topic sentences and supporting details and we cite evidence. So we do all the standards, but I guess how we go about demonstrating mastery is just going to look different than the traditional way just because I found that it's better for a lot of different reasons. Not only to get the end result, whether that shows up on a score or not, but also just as a human being, I feel like there's a better way to do that. So like that's kind of what we're doing. We're trying to figure we'll do together. Think about, I don't know, do you ever do any, because I, I think my answer would be something about critical thinking and being able to like, mm -hmm. like with my students, I said, when I hand you a book, when I hand you Shakespeare, do you just assume it's good because I gave it to you? And mm -hmm. they're like, yes. So we had that conversation. Um, so do you make explicit, do you talk about the fact that this community or this city ha doesn't have a lot of belief in these kids? Like, do you talk about that? Do you talk about the stereotypes that people have about them? Yeah, over time, right? So I think that's actually, right? So the first conversation back about book deserts, like why do book deserts exist? That was one of the first questions we asked you know, their sophomore year. And so you talk about like why there's only fast food restaurants. So unhealthy food and no books. And what that does to the people who live there. Um, and we we're, we talk about that and like, I listen and let students express their opinions. And I think sometimes we expect teachers, like they have to be neutral or unbiased. That doesn't exist. Like we all have biases. And so like, you can agree with statements like that. Like you can talk to students and agree that 
it's messed up that there are no libraries in East Nashville. Like that they live in a book desert that, if we're being honest, is designed to keep people in poverty. So yes, I do. Like I think that's part of, like it, it's it's true. So like you are acknowledging the reality that like our students are experiencing and we're experiencing in this community together. So like those things are happening and you're allowing students to think critically about that and then like work together. That's how we're working together to fix that a little bit at a time. So yeah, I think so. Right. And many administrators and other teachers would say, oh, you're a political teacher because you're acknowledging that that's a truth or Mm -hmm. that someone thinks that that's a truth. Yeah, no, I have a lot of people... Because initially when we started Project Lit Community, a lot of the mission was about like promoting love of reading, increasing book access and promoting love of reading. That's universal, right? That would make me a lot of money because like every school would agree with that and you wouldn't piss off any white people and like it would grow and we would expand into every school and every school would have a Project Lit Community chapter and there'd be a lot of people who would be supporting our movement. And for a while, that's kind of what we were doing. Like it became a really white movement, right? Because like that's attractive. We found white teachers on Twitter and like they have like a lot of times like the if you're a black educator to come out and try to do this work, it's going to be a lot harder. So like it was easier for them to start the work and join. But because I've been trying to reflect and talk to different people and think more about it, we have to be even more intentional in the language we use to define the work and to uh, recognize that it's much more than that, that project that's about. I don't think I fully recognize that. I was doing that work here. But when we started to invite other people that was a different responsibility that I had. And it was no longer just about our kids and what we were doing. Because I don't think anyone could argue with that, like what we were doing. But when you start to bring other people on board, so yes, like we've become, or whatever, if it's more political, sure. Like that, I will be fine with that because it means we're going to be about the right things and about what we actually are about. And not every educator and school is ready for that. Right. So like we talk about it all the time internally and we're getting ready to do it externally, which is project community is not for everyone yet. And that's OK. And, and for me, like teaching the same book year after year, the same essays, the same essential question, like, like it would be boring. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really feel like fast. for me as a teacher, for them. Are you teaching any books from that are not student choice that are from the curriculum, this, the prescripted curriculum? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So here's the thing. We don't have enough time as it is, right? I only see them every other day. Yeah. Every other day for 80 minutes. So when you're talking, what, 180 days a year? So that's 90. Then you're talking about exam week, front and back. That's mm-hmm. another 10. So you're looking at like 80 days. If I'm out for presenting or professional development or I'm sick or she's sick, you're looking at like, what, 75 days? So that's not a lot of time. Look how many books are up there. There are too many great books that are being written for us to not. We can't even get through all those. And, like, I know those books, and we know them together. So it's not like, and we work together on, so how do you make time for all of these great books that we would want to do whole class with book club mm-hmm. and student choice, allowing kids to still find time to read books of their choosing? And then if the other books are crappy, they're written in, they're old, maybe they can leave the school, maybe they can't. So then you're trying to do it in class, and then people start... Getting lazy with it and just like, this is, this is a waste of time. Like, why am I doing this? Hmm. Like, from a student's perspective. As far as, like, those books. But it's like when it's something that they're interested in, they'll just, like, keep going with it. And so, it's like, when we get the work, it's not that hard mm. to do it because, like, we can, like, fully understand what our work is about because we were interested in the book and, like, we enjoyed the book. What do you say? I have I hear from a lot of teachers, particularly I was talking to a lot of teachers about the hate you give. Mm-hmm. 
and teachers were saying, well, there's no figurative language to work with. We can't do deep analysis because it's so surface level. There's no like metaphor. It's not like standing in for something, a bigger idea. What would you say to that teacher? Those are the teachers that are teaching based off a curriculum. And the students aren't going to learn anything from that, especially like if it's just like Moby Dick or something like that. Like one of those really old books. I can't even think of any because it's like they're not interesting and they don't matter. They're not relevant to like us. So it's just like when they try to do it like that, then they might as well just go up front and just do a lecture. Because either way it goes, the students aren't going to care for it. They're, they're literally going to do it for a grade. And some of them probably won't even do it for a grade. Mm-hmm. So, Have you ever read To Kill a Mockingbird? No. never. I've heard of it, but I've never read it. And that's what they're like, oh, you should pair. Like, there's so much effort. Like, we're going to pair this with that. We're like, we're going to do all this work. If you if you do X, Y, and Z, then a, they're, they're going to love it. I'm like, well, I don't have to do any of that. I just have to get the books, and they're going to be into it. Like, there's, there's pride of, like, well, there's a lot of reasons we get into it, right, about mm-hmm. why we feel like we need to teach certain books. And now people are getting mad. If I, I'm on Twitter, people are starting to get, I'm, I'm rubbing, I'm getting some white people upset, which is fine with me. I'm not calling out any specific book, although there are books that are harmful, actually, if you dig into them. Mm-hmm. But my point is, like, there is no one book that somebody needs to be successful. Because we'd all have different books that sparked a love of reading or changed us or shaped us in some sort of way. And it's not like the books are inherently even more complex or better. A bunch of people just decided at a certain point that these were the books that we're going to use. And so mm-hmm. it's easier because parents and principals and everybody are used to those books now. So like, oh, that's what books are in English classes. Or like mm-hmm. they think that if people who are successful think that those books made them successful and therefore that those books are needed to make anybody successful successful. and that crap is just not true teaching say to kill a mockingbird Mm -hmm. is cheaper and easier and safer than the hate you give right Mm -hmm. but it's not actually better for jacayla or for a lot of people or for like for really any young person like why can you tell me why well, like movies, right? When you go to a movie, you like seeing things that reflect our reality, like our lived experiences, our, mm-hmm. how things are right now that allow you to process and see things differently, either to see yourself in it or to see others or to think more critically about the world we're living in, how we can all make it better and create a better future for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so there are beautiful authors and artists creating texts to be read now. Like, why would we wait 20 years for this to be considered a classic to read it? Mm-hmm. Like, it's being written now for people to read and talk about and understand. Right. Because, like, the things that adults grew up with are not the same things that we are going to grow up with. And then the things that we're growing up with are not going to be the same as the next generation grows up with. And, like, if you get kids, especially we're talking about kids who are not reading as much as they would like to, we would like them to, like, for all the different reasons, the smartphone being one of them. She's working. How many hours a week do you work? Like 25. So where's the time, right? So we know that students and adults are reading less, yet we're doing things exactly the same way and getting mad at the results. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there. There's like this elitism that a lot of English teachers have. I'm a fancy English major and I'm like, right. And they think like, this is superior work and like my students have to enjoy this. And if you want to be an English major, go ahead. But like most of us in jobs, like you don't actually need to translate Shakespeare to be successful. Like in my, in my job, how many jobs like require you to translate a sonnet? 
Like, are there any? Like, you need to be able to write and read and communicate, and they're all like standard skills, whatever we call them, like, you need. But, like, the idea that, like, something is essential, I don't know. I don't buy it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I really feel like, fast. for me, as a teacher, for them, like, the fake reading, that we, we can talk about the fake reading and the research that's done. Most kids will tell you, like, they BS their way through. They'll spark note it. They'll, like, look it up on Google. Mm-hmm. They'll pretend like they read it. Teacher walks in, oh, they're doing a Socratic seminar on this great text. And, like, no one actually read the book. Right. And it looks like they're doing this school thing. And, like, they may already be reading well enough to pass any standardized tests. So they're like, oh, that must have been the books. It's like, no, they've been reading their whole life. So the words make sense. And you could give them a passage and, like, she could, mm-hmm. it is not, so, like, she did really well on her testing, right? Because she's a reader. Like my ICT? Yeah, like, you're yeah. a reader. That's what you do. And, like, you read faster because you've been doing it a long time, and you enjoy it, and you see yourself and identify as a reader. Mm-hmm. So let's pretend the Hate You Give became part of the curriculum, and 84% of teachers are white. So it's now part of the curriculum, and teachers have to teach it, regardless of how they feel about race or whether mm-hmm. they know that they even have a race or that they're white or that they're, you know... Mm-hmm. What's going to happen? Well, honestly, it depends on, like, how they, like, pretty much on if they're, like, a racist or not. Because if they aren't, then they're comfortable with the fact that, and they realize that this is something that's actually happening now. But then those who are racist is like, this isn't true. Like, they're lying. They're pretty much lying in the books, trying to start controversy. Police protesting the hate you give. Did you hear about that specifically? No. Yeah. They're saying that the uh, book causes uh, anti-police sentiments. What do you think about that? Honestly, because, I mean, they kind of put that on themselves because they were in the news way before the hate you give was in the news. So (laughs) they want to be mad at anyone. They got to be mad at themselves. I don't think we should require the hate you give across the board, right, for that reason. Like, if we're talking about the hate you give, for example, like, how do we help them grow and reflect and become more empathetic and whatever those characteristics or competencies they need to have as districts, let's invest in that. But shoot, we can't even get books, so I don't think we're going to get people to invest in that. Developing people, shoot, that's not happening anytime soon. So my thing is, I'm not changing the world. We can't do that, but what we can do is say, all right, who are those great people out there who already get it, who already want to, let's work together, support one another, make some positive good trouble together. Are you teaching analytical writing with these books? Are there papers you have to write mm-hmm. for these books? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we still we still like do our like our essays and like like little book work here and there like to just like how did you feel about the book and like what do you think the main focus of the book was? We still do all mm-hmm. of that. It's just of our interest. Yeah, we're, the entire class is reading and writing and then discussing throughout. So there's never a minute of me. I don't lecture at all. Maybe I'll introduce a term if we need to. We'll do like a quick. But other than that, it's reading and writing about authentic stuff all the time. And super complex when it needs to be. So like book review, whatever they, wherever they're at, that can be as complex as letter to authors, letter to characters, to and from character, rewriting scenes from different points of view, Mm -hmm. compare contrast, the artwork they create. Sometimes we'll make it shorter and have to like, do like six words, like all sorts of stuff. Um, poetry, all sorts. I mean, and so every day they'll ha- usually have options too. So a lot of choice, a lot of authentic writing, a lot of sharing. So there's that. And there's also like our other, like with our article of the week mm-hmm. and there's yeah. essays there. So there's like, I mean, there's a lot of work, but the goal is that it's work that is like beneficial to us. So 
a lot of the books you mentioned and you talked about in your book club talk about identity and there's lots of issues about race, class, gender, all those things that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Do you have ground rules for how you run those discussions or is there any sort of parameters around how those discussions happen? A lot of teachers are super nervous to bring up to bring up any of those kinds of topics. Like, oh, if there's only one black kid in my class, I don't want everybody to feel like, you know, to be looking at that kid. Mm-hmm. So I'm just not going to teach that book. Well, with the book clubs, no, because of like when we like get to talking about things, like we literally are open to talk about anything. So it's like and like teachers don't necessarily like bring it up. We'll be the ones that like throw it into the discussion because like we're so we're comfortable at this point so like we feel like we can say whatever we feel like needs to be said and like you know people will understand they'll be taken back a little bit but they'll understand and that's how we like follow through with that yeah that's a good point like in whole class i feel like what makes it safe is that it's part of what we do all the time so it's not framed as like a controversial day or a controversial mm-hmm. text or an extra thing we do or something we do during black history month like it is part of what we do all the time and they all get their individual time to process before anything is whole class mm-hmm. so even with our class like we don't do a lot of like big discussion right away. Like there's a lot of time to read individually, process through writing, Mm -hmm. me allowing to process back with them through their writing, feeling like everyone's voice is heard through their and through individual conversation, small group conversation. And then over time, like you're ready for big whole class stuff. So my freshman, I remember during Dear Martin, we read that aloud and that allowed for it, but we were ready for it by that point. Mm -hmm. We had a full semester of choice and like through building community. And that's really what it is, right? You're building community in your classroom and that's what you would do normally. Whatever the text may be, like you just do those things or you don't. Like some teachers hear homophobic or racist comments and they ignore them. They don't address them in their room or they'll hear Mm -hmm. disrespectful things being said to other students and they let it go because they're not confident enough to be the authority in the room and shut that crap down right away, right? Like, mm-hmm. And they know that. Like, I'm not afraid to do that with anything at any point. If it's talking, if it's bullying, if it's whatever, like, I'll step up and shut that down right away. Yeah. It's allowing them to think for themselves and express their opinion mm-hmm. respectfully and learn how to communicate and do those things over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so I think the problem comes in when the way they go about introducing a text like The Hate You Give is framed in a way that's like, they're already on alert. Like, we're going to be reading this controversial book in... But Do you it's, think yeah. the fact that you're a white man helps in terms of advocating for Shoot, a program yeah. for this? Yeah, so here's the thing, right? When we started this, we had no idea that in two years, like, we'd be encouraging other people that we would mm-hmm. have something that authors or other teachers recognize and like, we oh... We thought it was just going to be like a school thing. Yeah, we we had no intention of that. And it didn't start that way, and that's not why we, we did it. It just, it. it just happened a little bit at a time. So my goal as a white male... One is to get myself out of the way, get the heck out of the way, and let them lead, let other teachers, and, and it's not about me at all. It really isn't. But I do sense that I can use my privilege in a positive way because if you're an only teacher of color in an English department, it's going to be really hard to say we should be reading The Hate You Give and that and, and the racism you're going to face. I will continue to advocate and amplify the voices of students and teachers of color the best way that I can and know that I'm not where I need to be yet, but continue to like seek people out and try my best to, to navigate and to, to advocate however I can. Jared, do you make your whiteness explicit when you're teaching? Yeah, and I, I think like we'll talk about even like simple thing, right? So like if we're talking about a, another teacher, we, a lot of people play that game of like, oh, you know, the person in the red shirt, 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, is he a white dude or a black dude? Like, mm-hmm. like, like that, like normal stuff, like all the time. Like they're a white person, they're not or a black person. Like people try to like hide race and make it invisible and it's not. Yeah. I acknowledge, like even I remember after the election, I don't have the answers. Like I, but the, the, there are crazy white people out there and we can talk about that. I don't know. I feel like by doing a lot of this over and over again, there's opportunities to make that visible. Jared and his students also try to connect with current events whenever possible. Two years ago, the ESPYs, LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Carmelo Anthony, gave a speech. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was about, I forget the exact... We did an article the week right, on that. Like the exact context, right? I forget what... But it was essentially, we have to do better, like a call to action. And one, I knew a lot of guys, like, I'm an athlete, I love sports myself. So, like, here you are, athletes up on a screen... That's going to be more engaging to begin with. But then, like, we print out the speech, and it's really complex, and there's you can break it down. So for me, that's part of what we do all the time. So, like, watching the Vice documentary after Charlottesville and talking about why people are so mad that we should remove statues or that we should, uh, like, the whole NFL, the right? So we, we do all that all the time, mm-hmm. and we talk about it. There are some classes where there may be disagreements, and kids may dis- and that's okay. But, like, we create that safe space constantly— talk about what Syrian refugee crisis like we do and so it's yeah. not just always about race like but it that is part of what needs to be read and discussed and talked about because For, it has become more and more of a problem so i feel like through all of whether it's novels or poems or articles or speeches videos documentaries podcasts graphs charts songs images photographs political cartoons essays memoirs short stories like all of those things like this is a great opportunity to so like I, I won't ever write out my lesson or unit plans the summer before because I know that we're going to be responding mm-hmm. to the world um, that we're in, which I get is not for everybody. Like that's not how every English teacher may approach their course, like when they're designing their. Um, and maybe there's a better. Maybe it doesn't even need to be in a traditional English course, right? Jared's decision to develop his curriculum based on who is in his room each year reflects a core belief of culturally responsive teaching. Students thrive in classrooms where they see themselves reflected in the course content. The way we're doing things is not working. And if you say it's working, then like, for whom? You know, they're like, you need mirrors and windows, right? But it's like, if our guys have never had a mirror ever, they deserve a lot of them, not just like once and then go back to everything else. Like, no, over and over and over again until they say, yes, I'm a reader. What else you got? So that's why we have a lot of them, and there are a lot of books that, like, and you keep doing it, and it's not just one time. A lot of schools will, like, check boxes, one specific unit or one specific text to say that they are an inclusive school or an inclusive curriculum. But actually, when you do that, it becomes more insulting. And what it should be is all the time, for a long time, like, for as long as, forever, really. I mean, we, we don't have, we don't actually need to, even ever get to the classics. Like some people think like, yeah, you do all this work and then when they're ready, like if they want to, sure. You wanna be an English major, sure. But like you don't, I don't know, it comes back to like this idea that you have to read certain texts. So I'd rather kids that just read a lot all the time. There's a new teacher who's coming here so he went off and started to look at his own books and my own resources. And he texted me the other day. He's like, have you read this memoir like, by a gang leader? Hmm? And I hadn't heard of it, right? But that's part of the problem, right? So he's going to start the, I'll make sure he doesn't. But he wanted to start the year with like some biography or autobiography about like a former gang leader. 
And I'm like, dude, that's so freaking stupid and like harmful, <laughs> right? Like, like he's thinking like, oh, that's going to be relevant. So like, there's like these T, I don't know. Mm-mm. There's like, there's a lot of work that's got to be done. They're going to laugh in his Say face. Say more about that. Why is it harmful? He shows up and he teaches that. Because he's making he's making it seem like these students are gangbangers. Yeah. Just like why would you bring that into the into the class? Like, <laughs> oh look at this. It's autobiography about a gangbanger. Like, or like teachers who try to teach only with lyrics and they're like, Oh, we're gonna listen to this rap song today. It's like <laughs> if you like, actually like know how to teach that well, sure. There's like hip hop ed and there's valuable resources that do that really well. And if you're part of that conversation and that community, power to you. But if you're not one of those people and you're just trying to pull in it's and you sit up there. Oh, it's so bad. Mm-hmm. And it's they gonna think you corny and you trying too hard. Yeah. And you just gonna make at your best. class uncomfortable. At, at best, it's that right. At yeah. best and at worst, it's like you are revealing yourself as like problem. Like your racism and your prejudice is like super apparent from the very beginning. So since eighty four percent of teachers mm-hmm. are white, what should we be doing in teacher education differently to teach students who aren't white? I don't repeat that again. <laughs> well, assuming, I mean, that also assumes that we can't get more teachers of color, but. So if we, to get more teachers of color, what do you think? I think we need to dramatically improve the school experience, the K-12 school experience for students of color. Mm-hmm. So if we actually made their school experience awesome, right, mm-hmm. then they'd be more likely to want to become teachers. But mm-hmm. if they're in schools where they see, what, like, would you, right? So that's, anyway, I know I, I couldn't be a teacher. That's what, the, too many of them say that. Because we gotta get more kids through with a better experience. What do we need to be teaching white teachers that we're not, that who want to start the year teaching a book about gangs? Don't do that if you if you're with a group of kids who are predominantly black because they're you're gonna make them feel like you're stereotyping them, and that's not okay. Like you should come, you should get to know your class first, and then try to do your lesson plans based off of that mm-hmm. because that's what my um, theater arts teacher. That's what she did. She realized that majority of the class was black, so she did stuff about like black directors and like black movies and so like that and like we did some with like white movies too and like white directors but like it was just majority of black because that's what we related to so it's just like learn your class first you you gotta learn your class first because if you just come in just automatically talking about a gang leader to a group of black students they're gonna be like so you think we gang bangers you think that all we all we good for is like being in gangs and selling drugs? Like that's not no. You can't do that. And that's the other thing too about like even the books we read. So like, say you only read The Hate You Give, which deals a lot with like police brutality. You should be able to see black characters in all sorts of just normal settings. Like, mm-hmm. just like Nick Stone gets that a lot. So like her next book, Odd One Out. Mm-hmm. I, it, it, so that's the idea too of like it's with three different races yeah I mean I, I, right so what would you say like basically if the only time we're reading about black characters is through like suffering or through big, being victims of police brutality or racism mm-hmm. that's not I mean that can be harmful too right mm-hmm. especially you're talking about reading it in uh, kind of a, 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 divert, a mixed setting like with white mm-hmm. and black students or even that's black like, students that's like degrading the black students because it's like all like the only reason why y'all are what y'all can be known for is like because of police brutality or because you're poor or because you were in a gang. Yeah. Like that's that's not empowering at all. So you yeah you want black superheroes and 
nerdy kids and gross mm-hmm. things and all the like the stuff especially i don't focus on that like the elementary middle grades but all of that stuff where they're digging for worms and their space and they're dreaming and they're mm-hmm. just being like being kids and, and beautiful and celebrated and just mm-hmm. all the time so like the gap in publishing we know that and the statistics that are there if schools were investing in buying those books then more be able to be written and you keep doing that and so and um, then it also yeah. makes like the white students feel superior to the the races because mm-hmm. they got all the good stuff so like they're more they're more likely to be known for doing some of the good stuff really while important. the black kids and the hispanic kids are known for just like growing up in poverty or being killed by a policeman mm-hmm. or or by being in a gang or selling drugs and things like that so then then like white students automatically mm-hmm. think oh i'm better than you Oh, I'm going to get further in life than you. So then, like, that makes us, like, feel like we're not, we don't have any worth. And then for those of us that know we do, we just understand that we have to work a little bit harder. And, like, in my opinion, like, with Project Lit, it's like looking on both sides. Because whether we want to accept it or not, there are sides to, like, with the way that things are like for example like race and like your gender and your sexuality like you have a pro of it and you have the cons of it and so like with this like we just get to discuss everything as a whole and it makes people feel better about themselves because these are topics that's really hard to talk about and like feel confident about. Jared and Project Lit have received some criticism on social media. There's no mechanism to ensure that all Project Lit chapters are teaching with an anti-racist lens, and teaching books that address race head-on without an understanding of structural racism is a problem. It's possible teachers could do more harm than good. So if progress can't always be perfect, where's the balance? Jared suggests starting with teachers who are committed to anti-racism who can influence other teachers who are curious and willing to try something different. Let's help all the good people band together and work together and celebrate one another and support one another. And then there are enough of those people that the ones in the middle start to look at those people like, oh, wow, they're really cool. Like, I like what they're about. Yeah, and I don't even know. That's the thing. Like, I don't know what we were talking about before you got in. Like, I don't know how I'm going to run my freshman class exactly. There's five different sections. I imagine each one will have to look a little different Mm -hmm. and should look a little different. We have enough books that, like, we're at a good starting point, but some really crave, like, the, the read-aloud in the beginning. Want that shared experience. Some are ready to go full choice, and, like, that's okay. When we first started looking into Project Lit, we were reluctant to tell this story because it reinforces so many stereotypes about white teachers going into underserved, or as we like to say, under-resourced communities and, quote-unquote, saving them. So... The fact that you haven't had a lot of media attention in some ways is surprising because I think it's a narrative that a lot of white folks are comfortable with. That in a way you could be called sort of an Atticus Finch savior and coming to this, you know, Mm -hmm. predominantly black school and providing Mm -hmm. kids the mirrors that are needed, Mm -hmm. that are clearly needed. I just wonder how you manage that. And I know like when we talked on the phone, Mm -hmm. you said co-founder and I was like oh who's your other co-founder another white teacher and you're like no my students mm-hmm. so I know that you've worked really intentionally yeah, so could you just talk about that a little bit yeah so like it's really hard to because I, I, it's not about me at all and but at the same time it's not my students job to like spend their outside of the school day connecting with other teachers so like it started by me being humble and willing enough to listen to my students and let them drive it 
And that's how it, it happened. And we could go through the journey of how we even got to here too, like over the past two years, that process has been like. So the first part of that journey, I felt I feel super good about. However, once it be, it has become a different, like me as the the founder working with other people, I still haven't figured that out of like the best way to communicate publicly to everybody. Like I'm not a savior. Like I'm not like a superhero. I'm not someone that like, I don't need anything, like any of the attention. I don't want any of the attention. I just want books. Like, please, like, I, I'm serious. Like, I don't want any stories about me. I don't need to be on any more podcasts. Like, I don't need to do any of that. I will help make, I think I can be in a position of privilege to help other white people, but like, shoot, it's not about me and I don't want it to be. At the same time, I'm really passionate about it. And I love my students. And I love this work and what we're doing. And I love the community that we're growing together. So it's about like figuring out the best ways to get myself out of the way and decenter myself and continue to engage with all sorts of people, whether it's students and families or other chapter leaders or educators of color, and just like continue to to figure out what that looks like. Um, it's fun. So that's why it's worth it. Like I do, like I love the work. So like I'm enjoying it every single day. I believe in it. I think it's important. It's going to, like you said, there's, if 84% of the profession is white, like it's going to take white people being allies. So that's the thing, like how do you be an ally without being seen as a savior? Like, I don't want that. So like, just tell me, like, I'll be want to have those conversations with people. Like whatever it is that I need to do, I will do that and organically, let continue to work together, clearly define what we're about, can do that, can be intentional about who we're supporting and uplifting and amplifying, can control that, can control everything that, that I say and I do, and then continue to think and talk to different people all the time and be willing to know that like, I'm not some like, shoot, I've taught 10 years. Like, I'm not like this. I don't know everything. Don't claim that this is like the way to do anything. I'm work. This is something that's working for us. And I'll continue to tweak that and be better and learn from other people and keep reading and talking and doing that. And that's all. That's all I can do. I'm glad we chose to tell this particular story. Though it could easily be seen as a white savior narrative, what is so compelling about Project Lit is that it was co-created between a teacher and his students. In fact, Jared was only willing to be interviewed with his students. They really modeled the value of relationships in the classroom and the power of co-constructing the curriculum. Their challenge to consider what we mean by the term classic seems like an important conversation, especially the notion of choosing which text to teach before you see who's in the room. Yeah, I think it's important to question why we believe that there are certain classic texts that must be taught in order for a student to be literate. By selecting relevant modern books, students get the opportunity to engage on an even deeper level, both because it connects to their lived experience and because it is a conversation with the author in real time. Yeah, what would it mean to stop defending our practices and start addressing the outcomes of our long-held traditions? Not sure we will ever finish this conversation, but we need to keep asking who's literary canon and who gets to decide. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please spread the word. The episode was sponsored by East Ed. Our story editor is Kate Ellis, and our sound editor is Jay Stewart Pheasant. Our theme song and music was written and performed by Henry Needham. I'm Jenna Chandler Ward. And I'm Elizabeth Denevi, and this is Teaching While White. Teaching While White.